Welcome to A Better Press for a Better World, a series from the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association. We explore the world of media through conversations with professional journalists and others in the media industry. And now, your host, MIPA's Executive Director, Jeremy Steele. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jeremy Steele. I am the executive director of the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association, and I am excited to welcome you to our uh, Better Press for a Better World webinar, webinar series. This is our first one, uh, so hopefully things uh, work out okay. We've already had our first hiccup um, in that we only have two of our three uh, speakers here today, and that's because uh, a short distance away from me here in Lansing, Michigan, uh, we have a protest going on at our state capitol uh, where I know uh, Lauren Gibbons from MLive has been out there taking pictures and doing some reporting. If you look her up on Twitter, you can see the folks who are protesting our stay-at-home order in Michigan uh, uh, via traffic and also out on the lawn of our state capitol here in Michigan. Uh, but otherwise, I am very happy to welcome uh, two of our other panelists here with us today. Uh, we have, uh, as scheduled, uh, Sergio Martinez Beltran from uh, Nashville Public Radio. Uh, uh, Sergio is the political reporter and host of uh, Nashville Public Radio's Tri-State podcast. Uh, he's also covered education for the standard, uh, standard examiner newspaper in Utah. He is a native of Puerto Rico and a graduate of Michigan State University, uh, as all three of us actually here on this, uh, this webinar are. Um, Sergio's work, uh, you may have heard him on NPR's Morning Edition, All Things Considered, On Point, Here and Now, and other programs and stations uh, throughout NPR's member network. Uh, and Mary Sell is a reporter and editor for Alabama Daily News, uh, an online news site based in the state capital there. Uh, since it launched in 2018, Alabama Daily News' morning email has become a must-read for elected officials, lobbyists, and state agency officials, uh, as well as other folks interested in affairs there in Alabama. The website distributes its coverage both from its site as well as to newspapers, TV stations, and other news sites around the state. Uh, Mary's coverage has included the ouster of the Alabama governor in 2017. Uh, and until this uh, COVID-19 took over the news cycle, she was covering uh, the, the U.S. Senate race, including the effort by former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to win back his uh his former seat. So welcome to both of you. Um, we're going to be able to take questions from folks joining us through Zoom on the web via the Q&A tool. So if you have questions for anybody here today, please uh, feel free to send those through to us uh, on uh, the Q&A tool. And uh, first, I uh, want to start out just by asking both of you, uh, and Mary, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, how the coronavirus situation has affected the work that you're doing uh, in, in your coverage of Alabama. Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me today, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Um, like a lot of other situations, the coronavirus has, has put some state political stories on, on hold right now or changed them significantly. Like Jeremy mentioned, um, 
um, three weeks ago or a month ago or covering what was going to supposed to be the Republican primary runoff between Jeff Sessions and his Republican opponent for that U.S. Senate seat. Uh, the, the runoff has been delayed, um, and in its replace, we're writing a lot about coronavirus. It has put the Alabama legislative session on hold indefinitely until uh, social distancing practices are no longer needed. Um, so just writing a lot of daily stories about what this virus has meant for education, for state agencies that serve uh, different groups, including the elderly, the low-income um, those with special health needs, um, what it's meant for junior colleges, and hey, there's Lauren. What it's meant for universities, the, you know, as you guys know, K-12 systems are, are at home now. Um, and then looking long-term at what it's going to mean when people are staying home, when people are not working, what those, the lack of tax revenue, including income tax, um, or sales tax, what that's going to mean long-term for state budgets is going to be a significant story, even when everybody gets to go back to work, hopefully next month. So that's, that's what we're working on. And welcome, Lauren Gibbons from uh, MLive. I know you were out earlier uh, today. Uh, it looks like you're at the MLive office, a uh, yes. short distance away from where you are there, where folks are protesting here in Michigan. Um, Lauren, tell us a little bit about how the uh, coronavirus pandemic has changed what you're doing uh, at MLive. Yeah, um, obviously it's changed almost everything about uh, about what we're reporting, what we are covering every day. Um, as Jeremy mentioned, I was just outside. Uh, there's still a protest going on of the governor's stay-at-home order for myself and many other reporters who cover uh, Michigan politics and policy. Uh, there are so many ongoing questions about you know, what is uh, covered under especially the stay-at-home order, but, you know, there's just so many executive orders coming out uh, uh, all the time, honestly. Uh, there's just a lot of changes. Uh, stories that I wrote two weeks ago are now woefully outdated. It's uh, it's a constantly changing situation. So I, I've been working different shifts. Uh, pretty much everyone at MLive has been, um, you know, covering a lot of things that are not necessarily in their normal beats and uh, really just uh, journalists both here and around the state and country and frankly the world are really just uh, changing everything about what they're doing and really just working on responding to uh, this major pandemic. And, and then Sergio, how are things impacted for you in the public radio world there in Nashville? Well, first I have to say that the last three weeks have felt like two years long. Like it's it's been insane. It's been so busy. Um, but but yeah, the same. I mean, we are covering things outside our normal beats. Uh, we're just trying to figure it out. Everything is moving so fast that at this point uh, we are having this policy in our newsroom that if you pitch a story and you cannot have it within forty eight hours, it might be moot by the end, by the time. Um, you want to publish it later that week. So we're trying to like publish like everything super fast and trying to run to, to get the story done uh, on the technical aspect. You know, it's so important to have voices on radio and, and to hear, um, you know, where we are, like create that scene with audio. And now we're not able to do that. Um, 
we are recording from our closets, from our cars, from our homes. Uh, we're doing a lot of interviews via Zoom, Skype. So, so that has changed uh, a lot. And the, the other thing is that, I mean, I have to say my newsroom, you know, there's a lot of freedom in my newsroom and, and we're able to do whatever we want pretty much in terms of like pitching stories and going places. Now we're not allowed to, to leave our homes pretty much. And the other thing is that we need, we need our editors to approve if we're going to do an interview in person. So, you know, even, even that has changed dramatically in the way we operate in our newsroom. Are there what what kind of techniques and tactics are you all using to do your reporting? Um, are, are you able? You know, Sergio just talked a little bit about restrictions in his newsroom about being able to go out and uh, talk to people live. Are are you all able to talk to folks in person? Are there particular tools that you're relying on to do a lot of your work? Um, I I can start with this one, uh, considering I was just outside. I, for the most part, have been working at home, although there have been a few instances uh, like today where I uh, was interviewing people in person. Uh, I maintained a six-foot distance and uh, was wearing a mask and protective gear. Uh, nothing nothing too fancy. I mean, I do have uh, I do have a mask, uh, but I you know was wearing my own gloves and that kind of thing. Um, and I also uh, covered the legislative session that happened last Tuesday. That was a very different situation. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly in the legislature and covering them. And uh, it was, it was very different. Uh, everyone was sitting um, six feet apart, at least in the gallery. People were, um, you know, just not necessarily talking to each other as much. Uh, lawmakers were coming in one at a time. Um, and I think for for me, when I'm out in those situations, I'm really just trying to abide by uh, the CDC guidelines. I really want to make sure that, one, I want to keep myself safe. Um, I want to keep my family safe. But I also just want to make sure that, you know, I'm not contributing to COVID-19 spread in any way by doing my job. Uh, journalists are considered essential in Michigan. Uh, we are allowed to move around and report as usual. Um, I am able to do most of my work from home. There are other journalists, especially our photojournalists, who are continuing to go out every day. And, you know, they're really, uh, really all in this situation. But, you know, I think, I think journalism still has to happen, uh, especially now. Um, during this COVID-19 crisis. And uh, it's, it's really important to, you know, keep yourself safe, but also, you know, try to do your job and your best of your ability. Jeremy, we're relying on social media a lot more, a lot more calls, crowdsourcing for certain stories. Um, you know, we, we did a story a couple of weeks ago about how, if you're pregnant right now and do, how that sort of upends what you thought would be your normal delivery, going to the hospital, that entire experience. So we put a, a call out on, on our social media looking for pregnant women willing to talk to us. So we're doing a, a lot more of that. It's definitely limited our ability to just, you know, walk up to strangers and say, hey, can we, can we talk to you? Because nobody really wants to be approached right now and, and 
don't really want to approach a whole lot of people right now too. So it's definitely, definitely moved a lot of things online even more than they already were. We're also approaching a different in terms of crowdsourcing. Um, we have launched our series called Dispatches from Quarantine, where we give uh, people prompts and instructions on how to record themselves using their voice memo app. And, you know, it's, it's unscripted. You just talk about your thoughts and then we have them on air. We have those voices on air because we're realizing that we're, we cannot be where they are, but they are there. So they can send it, send that audio to us and, and, you know, help people feel less lonely if they're listening to the radio and help people, you know, feel that they can identify with their neighbor or the teacher that talked to us or the 14 year old uh, student that was telling us about how hard it is to be in high, in in school right now and and be, you know, without her friends and, and all of that. So we're trying to do all of that. We're using different equipment. Now we have like a boom, a boom mic, which, um, it's a power move. It used to be a power move. Now it's so complicated <laughs> to use because it's so long. Uh, but but yeah, we're we're using that again. We're adapting, and like Lauren said, it's so important uh, to do journalism right now, and and we are committed to it. That's that's the thing. We are all committed to to making sure people make informed decisions. Um, Sergio, I know I saw on uh, one of your social media feeds this last week or so. Uh, you staring into your closet with your equipment. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you face, particularly as somebody in broadcast trying to produce high quality uh, broadcast work when you're stuck in your apartment? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, my closet is not as big as I thought it was. Uh, you know, once you have to like try to fit inside the closet to record yourself, uh, things change. Um, but yeah, we're, we're like, we're just trying to to create high quality audio so so we cannot go to our studios pretty much so what we're doing is we're trying to get in like small uh, places like like our closets our cars or on their blankets in our in our room to create a studio environment and you know sometimes we can record like that for for a minute or two minutes and sometimes we have to do a podcast episode of 30 minutes and we're like in our closet um i mean I, i think our main goal is to also even though everything is super crazy and super hectic, try to provide a sense of normalcy somehow. So because we're experiencing all of this, our quality should not be compromised. And so again, we're making a commitment to help people try to realize that yes, things are hectic, but we're doing our job and we're going to try our best to make it sound normal. Um, We've got a question from uh, one of our, our, uh, watchers uh lexi asked um what do you think is the most important purpose of journalists during this time in response to, in response to uh to covid19 and then along with that are there things that you all or, or that you're seeing other journalists start to cover it seems like obviously covid19 has been dominating the news cycle um is it this is it the same in your newsrooms are you are you do are you able to cover anything else right now For the last for the last three weeks, I've only had one non-COVID nineteen story. Um, like I've been, I mean, I've been mostly reporting on, on coronavirus. Um, in terms of what I think is the purpose right now, I, I really want our listeners to to make informed decisions, um, whatever that is. You know, even if that means you have to stay at home. You know, simple stuff like the governor here in Tennessee issued a safer at home executive order. 
And people thought that was a curfew. And there was this, this, this whole confusion and making sure we clarify it's not a curfew. It's a safer at home order. Uh, you know, small stuff like that. I think, I think those are, those are the things that matter at this point and also holding the powerful accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Lauren. Oh, no, it's a, uh, no problem. Sorry. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm beeping, but. I'm trying to shut off my notification, but I definitely agree with Sergio. One huge thing that we are really focused on doing um, in our stories is really trying to stop the spread of misinformation and really to get the best, um, the best information out there for our readers. Uh, there's a ton of confusion right now. There's a, a ton of social media posts that are, you know, kind of as in Michigan, it's really uh, been a lot about the stay at home order. Uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of concerns uh, from residents, and uh, that that obviously has borne out to lead to a lot of misinformation being spread. And so we're really trying to get the best and most recent information out there. Uh, like I said, you know, some stories are already outdated, so we try to, you know, update those as much as we can. And to the question about whether uh, we can do non-coronavirus stories right now, I, I can't remember the last one I did, to be honest. It's been a month of pretty much straight coronavirus stories. Um, it's it's hitting Michigan so hard right now. And even the stories that are not uh, necessarily related to coronavirus um, are very much affected by coronavirus. Like I'm working on a budget story right now, and I think Mary mentioned this a little bit earlier. Working on a budget story because the budget in Michigan is just – uh, is just shot right now. Like every idea that they had about the what the budget would look like in January is completely out of the picture. So it's affecting pretty much every aspect of everyone's lives right now. So um, it, there are some reporters at MLive who have, you know, tried to, you know, get some features out there a little bit different, trying to highlight, um, you know, just to, just to try and lighten the mood a little bit, I guess, like, they're trying to highlight some restaurants who are still doing carryout service or that kind of thing. Um, a couple of folks have put out some really interesting features. I know one of my colleagues in Ann Arbor did a story about John Prine after he died. So um, it, it kind of depends uh, for, for me on the ground. I have not done a coronavirus story in a long time or a non coronavirus story in a long time. As, as you are, as you're reporting, as you're looking for stories, um, how do you stay positive, especially when we're surrounded by so much coverage that just by its nature deals with such serious, uh, weighty issues? Um, it's, it's pretty hard to stay positive, honestly. I think it goes back and forth for me. Um, one thing that I really try to do is when I am not on the clock, I try to avoid social media. I try to get all my consumption in at one time. And then after that, I shut it off. And obviously, it's very hard for journalists to do that. Our nature is to just constantly be getting the latest information. Um, but, you know, after after I log out for the day, I really do try to stay off Twitter in particular. Sometimes, you know, I look at Instagram, but Instagram is a little bit different for me because it's mostly just other, you know, pictures of fun things that I like to follow. But that, that has really helped. And but really just trying to stay connected with my friends and family has also helped uh, me keep a positive attitude. Um, it's very much, 
it, it is very depressing. It's not a good time for, for humanity at this point. So trying to, you know, keep connected to the people that you love, even though you're not able to see them physically has really helped me keep a better attitude about things. Mm -hmm. uh, Sergio, how about you in, in Nashville? Are there, are there strategies that you are taking to try to uh, stay positive for yourself? And also what kinds of things is, is Nashville public radio doing uh, for, for your listeners there? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's been hard. Personally, I've been meditating a lot and trying to unplug like Lauren. I mean, in the week, on the weekends, I try not to, to have my phone near me because I know I'm going to be looking at Twitter nonstop um, just because we want to make sure we're on top of things even when we are not on the clock. Um, in terms of, of our newsroom, I mean, we are holding now daily meetings. We used to not do that, but now we're doing little Zoom meetings. So that way we can see each other and still like have this dynamic and this and this uh, good vibe happening between between the newsroom. And we're doing daily check-ins with our editors where they're asking about how we're feeling physically, but also emotionally and mentally. Uh, just trying to make sure if this is going to take a toll on us, it's not a it's not coming as a surprise, and we can tackle it before before it becomes too bad. In terms of listeners, I, again, we're just trying to make sure we're providing them with a place where they can come to us and not fear about hearing a lot of people yelling at each other. Uh, so that's why most of them are tuning into NPR during this time, and then. The other thing we're doing, I mean, we're lucky to have a classical station where we have classical music playing nonstop. So a lot of our listeners, uh, we've seen our ratings going up on that side of the classical station because a lot of people, they don't want to listen to the news or watch the news. So they're just listening to classical music. Uh, we've got a question from Jack. Um, how are you all going about contacting people to interview them? Um, obviously, you can't. Maybe in some cases you can meet in person, but but is this what kind of challenges are you running into in doing that kind of base level um, journalism? And and I guess how are you going about that kind of work of of interviewing folks? I think this is a, a really good time to use these sources that you've you've cultivated uh, in your career on your beat because um, yeah, it's a lot more telephone calls now than it was a month ago, six weeks ago. Um, you can't just go up to, to, you know, public meetings are, are a lot more distanced. Um, so I've been relying a lot more on, on my network of sources that fortunately I've been able to develop uh, with almost 10 years on the same beat. Um, not everybody has, has that. Um, but yeah, a lot of phone calls, a lot of crowdsourcing, uh, as we mentioned earlier, and just a lot of, hey, do you know somebody who might know somebody who might know somebody? I mean, you just got to, gotta. I'm asking, all, go, going down a lot of alleys. <laughs> Related to, to that last question, Brooklyn asked if there are any new techniques, skills, uh, technologies, or advice that you've picked up um, in, in covering this issue in the last few weeks and going about your work. Using Zoom. <laughs> Zoom, yeah. <laughs> Did anybody know about Zoom a month ago? I didn't. <laughs> no, no. I've also learned about house parties. 
which is a fun one, and that one you can play little games on it and stuff too. But it's basically the same. Yeah, that that's something that I have had to get used to. Uh, Zoom press conferences um, yeah. have really been a has really been a learning curve, not necessarily for me, but for uh, um, for the hosts, especially. <laughs> I think um, I was so I I appear on off the record from time to time, which is a Michigan's. Uh, statewide political show and we did our first zoom off the record last friday which also came with a learning curve but it was it was really fun and he's been he's been having to do it for a few weeks now so there's there's a lot more virtual activity going on um and i think we're gonna start trying i haven't personally uh tried to do a one-on-one zoom interview with the source before but we're starting to look into um, you know, especially for some of the folks that we've been calling, uh, trying to set up a way for them to have, you know, so we can put a little bit more of a face on these issues. Um, you know, we've, we've done Zooms with the governor, we've done Zooms with various uh, with leadership, and, uh, uh, and now we're starting to try to see, you know, where can we add that to our, to our personal interviews, like people who are experiencing that themselves. So it's a, it is a learning curve, but we're, we're definitely trying to adapt to the times. We're doing way more live hits in our station. We used to have a lot of uh, pre-recorded stories and now we're doing way more live hits. So, I mean, I'm definitely uh, working on that. And I think I'm becoming more self-aware that, you know, when you're doing Zoom, uh, people can still see your body language, so you cannot <laughs> roll your eyes <laughs> or like move your head like you're frustrated. Uh, you're over. <laughs> checking email. Right. <laughs> are are any of these techniques are are these tools or techniques that you all think that you may use going forward, or are there some of them that you're ready to like never use again once you can go back to to your traditional techniques? I think I think some of them can definitely be used again, um, especially for folks around the state that you know we probably would use a phone call anyway. Um, it it would be, I I think like people seeing that voice and that face does does often help readers connect with them. Um, so I I do think there's definitely some uh, some things that you can take away from this. Although I I am going to to be glad to be in rooms with other people again, I think, um, as, as I think we all are once it's safe to do so. We usually use um, Skype or Google Hangout to connect with sources who are remote or like working somewhere else outside of the state, for example, because it has a good audio quality. Um, but there's always, I mean, we always have to teach people how to use them usually. Um, and I think because so many people are using Zoom now, this might be the go-to like app to connect with those sources and they might already like know how to use them. And so it might be easier. Um, Maggie's got a question that circles back a little bit to, to some of the things you touched on when you joined us, Lauren, but um, Maggie asked that, especially for photojournalists and others who have to be on site and come face to face with people in order to report, you know, are there fears that you have related to increased exposure um, and, and especially today with you out there, Lauren, um, what specific kinds of steps did you take to try to reduce your own risk, um, given that you're surrounded by hundreds of people that you don't know the, the status of? 
Right. And absolutely. And that is, you know, a fear that is valid. And it is a fear that, you know, I shared, especially today. Um, like I said, I haven't had to go out too much. Um, but I am, I am taking pretty extreme precautions, even, um, you know, just for routine trips to the grocery store, for example, you know, I have begun wearing a mask out in public. Um, and I, I do thankfully have one that's pretty good. But um, it, it's very important uh, to really, you know, understand what six feet looks like um, and make sure that, you know, you're well, you're giving people a wide berth. And it's a little bit harder to do with interviews, as Sergio mentioned. Um, you know, you got to stand pretty far back to get that six feet distance, but it's really important. Um, and so I, I've really been trying to keep my distance and uh, wear a mask. And also, I've been relying a lot more on, you know, just my just my eyes and ears, right? Like, I don't need to talk to people. Um, I don't necessarily need to talk to a ton of people, right? It's, um, it, it, I can, and I can do so over the phone, or I can do so over Zoom, or I can also just rely on some on-the-ground reporting. I don't necessarily need to talk to a certain number of people to get the good story. Um, and, and I do benefit, you know, from having a lot of phone contacts that I can use, so I don't necessarily need to, like, make those contacts on the ground. But it, it is just really, you know, I, I take my safety and the safety of my family very seriously, and I am just trying to, you know, use more more of my just really keep my common sense as well as the CDC guidelines in mind and I know that our photojournalists are also doing a really great job of this they're we're, we're all looking for new ways to tell stories in a safe manner right we're all used to being able to talk to people or get close to people and um, you know I, I think I for our photojournalists especially it's been really cool to see the new angles, the new ideas, the new ways of telling stories that they've come up with. We've had a lot of through the window portraits, for example, that have been really interesting. Um, it, so it, it is just, you know, being creative while also adhering to social distancing guidelines is really key in this. I think and one thing to keep in mind is the world has changed for our sources too. I mean, we all talk to politicos all day. And now they're at home with their kids or grandkids. Um, they're not going to their nine to five jobs if they have them. Um, I'm sitting outside because my three-year-old and two-year-old are in the house. <laughs> um, and so this just makes more sense. But like, I'm getting up at four in the morning to work for a couple of hours before my kids get up. And then I work more when they go to bed at night um, because they're two and three. <laughs> and but you know I talk to sources during the day and they've got their kids in the background too or I mean their lives have been kind of thrown for a loop too so it's just a whole new ball game for for everybody right now and I mean there's that's kind of it's kind of nice I mean everybody's I mean it's so cliche that we're all in this together because obviously the situation is much much worse for some people than it is for others um but but things have been altered for everybody. Um, and so it, when, when you're calling sources, you know, they're used to being at, at the state house or at their, you know, government jobs. And, and they're at home too, just sort of waiting to be able to go outside again. 
what, what kind of techniques and tactics are you as, as reporters, but also your newsrooms taking to stop the spread of misinformation and to try to get obviously lots of good information um, out into the hands of your audiences? Um, for example, I mean, we, we are trying to be um, just as absolutely accurate as possible because in the very beginning, I mean, there were, there were testing issues, and this is still a very scary thing. But there were a lot of unknowns. Um, obviously, Michigan is getting hit really hard right now. Alabama has not seen the numbers that, that Michigan has, but there's testing issues. There were issues, you know, people legitimately concerned about their safety and, and the safety of their loved ones, especially elderly, vulnerable populations. So just trying to be accurate, trying to get, the best information out there as far as combating misinformation i mean we don't do a whole lot of oh this rumor is false don't pay attention to this facebook post because i mean if you'd go down that rabbit hole you'll spend all day going down that rabbit hole but but just trying to be a a accurate reliable source of good information because i think that's what people want right now that's what they appreciate and that's what they'll keep coming back for yeah, Mary, I definitely agree. There's just so much uh, on social media right now that it's just oh. like you, you can't follow every single lead in that regard. Yeah. But, you know, it is it is so important to just be that reliable source of information, um, at least, uh, you know, at least at MLive, like we've had uh, so many more people reach out to us. Like you can really tell that a lot more people are reading stories. A lot more people are seeking out news right now. And it's better they come to us as a reliable source of news information than, you know, their their Facebook group or whatever. Yeah, Crazy so, Ann on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. So, so we really try, you know, with every story we write, we try to be intentional. We really are working on planning out our coverage and, um, you know, in, in instances where something changes, which is true a, a lot of times, um, you know, I think I've said it a few times already, but there are stories that I wrote, you know, just even a few days or a few weeks ago that are just, you know, so they're just not relevant anymore. Right. The you numbers know. change. I mean, the numbers change every day. The projections change. We haven't right. hit our peak yet in Alabama. And I mean, those numbers and what they, that could look like, you know, changes depending on which model you look like, depending on which, which day it is. So yeah, I mean, things change by the minute you you're mentioning earlier, um, you did any COVID-19 stories and I think just about every story has a, a COVID-19 angle at this point. I, I think I've written one in the last couple of weeks and it's about um, Alabama wants to build new prisons. We have a horrible crowded prison situation. State's going through a process to get private companies to build prisons, but they had to uh, extend those, uh, those deadlines. But now the issue is we don't know what our state budget's going to look like in the fall. We don't know how much money we're going to have for these prisons. So even when it's not about COVID-19, there's a, there's a COVID-19 COVID paragraph in there or angle in there. Right. What, what, is your, what is your fact-checking process look like when you're talking to people, uh, whether it be regular folks or um, – you know, official sources, what, what kind of process do you go through before your work gets published or, or broadcast? 
Um, well, for me, um, are you talking about COVID-19 and just in general? I, I mean, especially COVID-19, but I, and I don't know if this has led to any changes from um, the way your processes normally work in your newsrooms. You know, it, it has been a little tricky because like we're going, like, if I interview the state health officer, like, he is the state official on on what COVID-19 is looking like in the state. You know, I, it, it's hard to fact check his numbers when, when I don't have, nobody else has access to them. But um, as far as, you know, we're using a lot of CDC information, using a lot of World Health Organization information, um, as, as far as verifying as much as we can, some of the statistics uh, about where we are today. Yeah, I agree with uh, with Mary. It's been it's been hard to fact check those numbers because they're coming from from the source, um, and and everything has changed and everything is changing so quickly that by the time you you see oh it's actually this number the number changed so then it's like wait a minute it's 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 been complicated um, but I don't know I don't know I guess I guess we've tried to to ask questions and push back. I mean, we've had, we have, we've had issues with transparency in the state in terms of the numbers they are releasing. Like right now we, uh, we are releasing, for example, uh, we know the nursing homes or senior facilities that have COVID-19, um, but we don't know how many people in those facilities have it. So if the facility has two or more cases, they'll appear on the state website, but we don't know how many, I mean, it can be two or it can be 200 and the state refuses to give us that data. Um, so, I mean, there's a point that we're just like, we push back. I mean, we, we have stories about it. We have stories about how other states are publishing this data and we are not, like we're choosing not to. And I guess, I guess that's, that's what we're doing at this point. It's like, we're seeing this information and if we see there's lack of transparency or there's holes, we are very clear and we explain people, hey, like they're saying they don't have the numbers because this is like, MO, their MO, but actually other states are releasing this number. So we're like, we're not doing what other states are doing. How, how do you help hold those public officials accountable? This is a question from um, Jacob. How do, you, how do you help hold those folks accountable when you can't go to their office or you, you, know, you can't stop them on the floor of the legislature um, when you're relying on these remote uh, journalism techniques to, to try to to talk to them? I think this isn't necessarily a, you know, COVID-19 answer, but it's also just a journalism answer. Access doesn't necessarily equate to good journalism. There's always going to be people who don't want to talk to you, who, you know, maybe don't know the answer themselves, don't know how to find it, and don't want to say that they don't know, right? Um, So I guess, you know, just tenacity is really a huge part of journalism, both remotely and like when you are able to go in person again. Um, and I know for, for us, uh, one, one issue in Michigan has been um, a lot of people have been pushing for the recovery data, like people who have been released from the hospital. And um, that, was a, that was a statistic that the state of Michigan was not releasing for a long time. You know, we covered it, we wrote about it. Um, and eventually the state was starting to, uh, is starting to publish those numbers now, but 
their definition of recovery is a lot different than what our local county health departments are saying. So we have a county health department saying they have 100 or so recoveries where the state total recovery is a completely different number because it's a completely different definition of what a recovery is. So it goes back to, you know, just really questioning why these things are being reported and really explaining in your story. You know, there are different numbers out there. This is how you should interpret them um, based on based on our knowledge and so like our frequent communication with public health experts. So it, it's really just about, you know, basic journalism tactics. Like if somebody's not giving you an answer, try to find it from somebody else who knows. Like if somebody doesn't know who does know, it's just this constant yeah. um, trying to trying to figure out who does know and how, how you can convey the correct information appropriately. Right. And but, report, report what you get and report what you can't get, you know, mm-hmm. report what wasn't available or what they didn't release mm-hmm. and, and, and let public know. I mean, we, we've run into that where, you know, health officers here uh, say, well, you know, we, they weren't reporting early on any information about people who died. You know, a, a lot of States were saying, uh, you know, 61-year-old male with underlying conditions. We weren't getting a, a lot of that right out of the bat. And so, you know, we kept asking for it. And and the state official said, well, you know, we just, you know, we've had so few deaths at this time. It was probably a couple of dozen. This just doesn't seem that important right now. Okay, well, you know, it's still, it, it is important. And, and people, you know, need to know. And they, they people want to know what, what it looks like, what this, this pandemic looks like in their counties. So, I mean, we are able to get that now. I think that once we are through this, there is going to be so much reporting on the numbers once they, they do become available. Um, once And they'll become available because reporters are going to keep pushing for them. Um, mm-hmm. I think even when we are through the peak of this pandemic, I mean, there's going to be reporting and fact-checking going on for, for months. And I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think journalism matters because of that, because we are able to get some numbers because we've been pushing back. Like the reason why in Tennessee we have data by counties is because we wrote stories, we went on air and we talked about it over and over and over for like a week and explaining how other, other states were doing it mm-hmm. and explaining how uh, the state was, Tennessee was citing HIPAA law, the HIPAA law for not releasing that data. But that's bogus. I mean, that's not true. And so we published it. And then the two weeks later, we got the data from county. So, so it matters in every state. Mm-hmm. What are some things, what are some tips that you might have for how high school journalists can cover this issue in a safe and, and meaningful way? Maybe there, there are some things that you've picked up as well in your work that you think can, um, be applied to, to students who are still in school at least for a little while longer and looking for some some ways to keep doing journalism for their communities. You know, I think I think that uh, student journalists have have one of the biggest biggest stories of you know one of the biggest stories of all this is that K twelve schools are closed. Um, I think that you know even us uh, have really focused on that uh, and our news organizations have you know been telling those stories of of young people who are not getting you know who are not getting their graduation who 
are still up in the air about what school might look like next year, if schedules are going to be different. Um, There's so many stories to tell, and student journalists are really in a good position to tell a lot of those stories because, you know, you have all those contacts with students and teachers who are really being impacted um, by this in a very personal way. And uh, there are obviously limitations, uh, remote is everything now, um, but there are ways to do that and, you know, use the sources that you've built up throughout the, throughout the school year so far and really just try to um, try to use those sources and try to, you know, tell the stories that you're seeing. Um, I wouldn't discount uh, your own personal experiences. You know, perhaps there's a column that you can write or those kind of things. I mean, it's, it's a, an ongoing story and, you know, you're right, right there front and center uh, experiencing it yourself. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity. Yeah, uh, we've, I've, I've written several stories from K-12 angles because there are, there are just a ton of them about, you know, when, when school's out, how do kids that rely on school meals, how do they get fed? What are school systems doing to, to continue to provide those meals? Um, internet access in Alabama, um, almost half of the state does not have access to reliable broadband in Alabama. How are these kids supposed to be doing their homework when they don't have reliable internet? And what disparities does that cause between the kid in rural Alabama who's using copy paper packets that got sent to them versus the kid in Birmingham who's essentially, you know, got everything he needs right there on his laptop. That's been a huge story. And I think that'll be a a huge story months from now, just the disparities, what schools have learned, what resources are being given to teachers um, right now. All of a sudden you've gone from your classroom to sitting here like I am and you're supposed to teach 20, 30 kids. That's a, what, what resources have you been given? What, how is that working? What lessons do you take from that? There are just a ton of stories that you guys are living right now. And, and yeah, like Lauren said, if you have problems with, getting official sources. I mean, you guys are, are right there in the thick of it. You write, write what you know. But uh, let's switch gears a little bit and spend a little bit of time just talking about how you all got to where you are and maybe tips that you might have for, um, for young people out there who are interested in getting start, started in journalism. Can you, can you each give us kind of a quick rundown of how you got into the business to, to begin with? Um, Sergio, should we start with you? Sure. So um, like Jeremy said earlier, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I got involved pretty quick in my town newspaper initially. Uh, and then in the, in the Puerto Rico biggest paper, they had a youth section that's no longer there, but they used to have it, and I, was, I used to write columns for them. Uh, and that's how I started getting involved with it. And then I participated in a radio station, in Puerto Rico for free, a lot of hours, uh, not getting paid anything, not even my parking ticket was validated. But it was experience. Um, and then I went to Michigan State, where actually Lauren used to be my boss at the, yep, yep. <laughs> at the student paper. Um, but, but yeah, once in college, um, I interned at the, at the state paper, and then I, I stayed there for a little bit. Then I interned at the radio station in Michigan State and then had another internship at a paper. All that to say, like, I pretty much took 
any opportunity that was on my way. Like I was a copy editor for Mears News in Michigan for, for a little bit. I was a copy editor, the person who has probably the most typos in the world. I was copy editing that newsletter on Fridays, but I said yes, and I got here. And then at one point in college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So initially I thought I wanted to do environmental journalism, took a meteorology class that quickly changed my mind, uh, decided to do that political journalism and, and try to focus on that, doing that. And, and yeah. Uh, but again, saying yes, once I graduated, I moved to Utah, which I've never been to Utah. I mean, to for longer than like a few days and, and moved there, had a job covering education and realized, man, there's like so much here. And then now I'm covering politics. So all I have to say, I said, yes, yes, yes. Trying to find a way into where I am now. Lauren, how did you get started? Um, well, I actually was, uh, I've recently been going through some of my high school stuff because I've been um, using using this quarantine time as a little bit of an organization spring cleaning. Um, but I, I did get, uh, I did get a little bit of a start in high school. I worked for my high school newspaper when I was a senior and all through school, I was very, uh, very passionate about writing and I'm, you know, very extroverted. So it felt like journalism could be the right fit. And I really realized that it was uh, when I started at my high school newspaper in my senior year of high school. And then um, I immediately started working for the state news. I, I applied. I was When I was in high school, I was like, I want to work at the state news. This is what I want to do. Uh, so my college newspaper really helped me become an aggressive reporter. I actually thought, I very briefly thought I was interested in um, music journalism, you know, had the dreams of the Rolling Stone or whatever. But um, then I realized that it's actually kind of hard to cover something you really like a lot. So, um, you know, rock music, uh, I prefer to just be on the sidelines as opposed to covering that myself. Um, and so news is really, really where I found my, um, really where I found my passion, where I found my beat politics kind of came along with that um, based on uh, some internships and my first job opportunity out of school. I actually worked at MERS, um, which Sergio uh, was a coffee editor at for a little bit uh, before I started working at MLive. And um, it, it has been, it has been a fun ride. And I would just say, you know, I took a lot of time and really spent a lot of effort, um, you know, taking internships, networking, really just trying to understand what it meant to be part of the news industry. And, um, you know, just putting yourself out there is very important. Just saying, this is what I want to do. I'm pretty good at it. I've started doing it already is, is a great start. Um, so, I, I think, um, you know, it's definitely possible. And even though there's still challenges in the industry, it's definitely a worthy and important career path. And Mary, how did you get your start in the business? Um, high school journalism. I was a MIPA kid a million years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to Michigan State, um, worked at the State News for a long time. That's where I met Jeremy Steele. And from there, I worked for Gannett newspapers for about 10 years in three different states, moved around quite a bit. Uh, You know, when I was in in college, I would not have guessed that I'd be covering politics in Alabama. I actually wanted to be an international correspondent for the Associated Press. Um, 
but uh, sometimes covering politics feels a little bit like a foreign country. <laughs> so uh, yes. it worked out. Um, but like Sergio said, you know, you, you say yes to a lot of opportunities. I, I started at a small newspaper. Actually, my first job, I was 17, year, 17 years old in high school working at the Weekly in uh, Pawpaw, Michigan. Um, hmm. So just right where you can. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of unpaid internships. I hate that because um, it's not fair to students, and it, it keeps a lot of students who, who need to, to make some money out of newsrooms. But if you can do it, write, read, get uh, write whatever you can, get anybody to read it, get anybody to help you to edit. Um, but uh, I covered education. I've been a assistant metro editor in Jackson, Mississippi. Then I came to Alabama um, and worked for a previous editor who said, hey, I, I need a state house reporter in Alabama. And I said, all right. Um, and it's been great. Um, seen a lot of changes in the industry. I, I went from working for Gannett, which when I started there in 2003 was still pretty stable. That that. Uh, changed. I've seen a lot of really good newspaper reporters walked out the door because of cuts. Um, and now I'm working at an organization that didn't exist two years ago. Things in this industry are changing rapidly, but I truly believe that there's always going to be a need for news reporters. Um, and you guys are entering journalism at sort of an exciting time. I mean, you guys are going to be using technology and using tools if you become reporters in five years, they don't even exist right now. When I started, at, even at the state news, I didn't have a cell phone. And I was, I was a grown adult before I had a cell phone with like an internet capabilities. Like the things that are going to be available to y'all are amazing. But I truly believe when we're talking about COVID-19, people want good, reliable information, the tenets of good journalism haven't changed, and they're not going to change. Accuracy, um, unbiased information, the, the facts, um, people want that, and they're still going to want that. So I, um, I am very happy that this crazy path got me to, uh, to where I am today, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had. What what's something that that each of you wishes you would have known when you were first starting out in journalism? I guess um, I I spent a lot of time worrying about whether uh, what I was doing was prestigious enough or whether it would be enough to be be a full time job. Um, I graduated uh, shortly after, you know, the big recession um, in, two th the, well, the, the first one, I, the, a lot of you guys are probably also uh, going to experience something similar. Sorry, it's not fun. Um, but it, it was really kind of stressful to think about, you know, whether or not what I was doing was good enough to be a full-time job. And what, at least in my experience, um, my work, um, I, I felt pretty strongly and kind of needed to uh, take internships that paid. Um, and, you know, sometimes they weren't as exciting as some of the other ones that were unpaid internships over the summer. But I, I really pushed through and I just was very, you know, 
very much trying to make this a career from day one. And I, I would just say, you know, as, as you're graduating into kind of uncertain times uh, for a lot of you, um, there is still a path. Sometimes you have to blaze it yourself. Sometimes it's, uh, it kind of manifests itself to you in ways that you don't necessarily understand at the time. But, you know, I would just, I would just try not to get too discouraged or try not to compare yourselves to others because, you know, the grass is always greener and somebody is always going to have an internship that you think might be cooler than yours or what have you. But, or, you know, once you get to your first job, like maybe it's not exactly what you envisioned when you were in high school. But um, there's, there's just so much opportunity out there. Um, I think as Mary alluded to, you know, there's opportunities that we just don't have any clue could start happening, especially, you know, with nonprofit journalism and online journalism really exploding right now. There's always going to be a need for what we do. And it's very important that, you know, you keep that in mind and try to try to see the big picture, even when you're worried about things, um, you know, worried about, you know, just just life things coming along. Um, it's not it's not going to end there if you don't let it. I guess um, for me, it's like, it's okay to take a break. Um, I took a break in college because I was, I mean, the, the state news was burning me up because of how, burning me out because of how much work you have to do. And I took a break and I did other jobs like working for the before and after school programs of the YMCA. And I realized that I disliked it so much that I wanted to go back into journalism. But I would have not known that if I would have not, you know, had that experience. And I guess my, my, my last advice is to be kind and be grateful to your sources, but also to the people that like have helped you some, somehow, like your teachers, your professors, like just be kind and grateful and remember that and try to help others. Mary, what do you wish that you would have known when you were just starting out? Um, well, a couple of things, I guess. Um, I, I never, and this is embarrassing to even admit, I didn't know how much money journalists made. <laughs> Not a ton. Not a ton, kids. <laughs> so I, I, I used to be fair. I think you should have some realis realistic expectations of, of what sort of salary you want out of college and what newspapers pay. Um, and I've made it work. And I'll, I'll be honest with y'all. And this was 18 years ago when I got my first job at a Gannett paper, I was making $24,000 a year. That's not a lot of money. And so within four years, I was able to almost double that, but it took a couple of moves, moving across country. So, you know, brain assault. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wish I had known, and I'm just realizing this now, is that, you know, I, like I, I mentioned, I've, I've watched a lot of changes in the industry, um, a lot of downsizing of newspapers, and I worked for a lot of years being scared of being laid off. And it makes you, it makes you volunteer for a lot of weekends and a lot of evenings and a lot of, I'll do this, I'll do this, making yourself valuable to a company. Journalists have so many skills and can do so many things. And you just need to know that and, and appreciate that about yourselves. And I've got a lot of friends from Michigan state who are not in journalism anymore, but are, have made these great careers for themselves. So just know that, you know, people are, are down on the media a lot right now. 
now when you hear fake news all the time, I just you know it makes me want to throat punch somebody. But <laughs> just know your worth and know your value and know your skills. That's uh, that would be my advice. Don't throw a punch anybody. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> Great. Good advice. Any any other last pieces of advice that any of you have for um, for our studio student audience? I think I think it's inevitable that um, you're gonna face some hardships in the business because of how the business is right now. Uh, but I think Mary hit it. Like, I mean, I remember in my first paper, uh, there were layoffs. I was four months into my first job out of college. There was already layoffs. I survived. But one of my colleagues who didn't survive, she told me, um, she was, she was, she told me, you have transferable skills. Never forget that. And that, that changed everything because that was like, you know what? You're right. I can do radio, maybe. I mean, I'll risk it there. But, uh, you know, I, I thought, okay, I know how to write. I know how to report. They cannot teach me that. They can teach me how to use a microphone. So maybe I give it a try, and I, and I did. So, so yeah, you have those skills, use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, and I, I definitely want to reiterate uh, Mary's point about knowing your worth and knowing that your skills are worth money. They're worth actual money. And it's not an easy time right now. A lot of media companies are uh, going through furloughs or hiring freezes right now because of COVID-19. A lot of the incoming revenue is dried up. But, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's forever. There's going to be opportunities out there. And you should get paid for those opportunities. <laughs> um, definitely reiterating that. And it's also um, it's also really important to me. Um, I especially um, I, I don't I especially think for women journalists, um, for all you uh, female students out there, um, be kind of aggressive. Like, don't just take the first thing that they offer you. Like, be willing to be aggressive in salary negotiations and you know, be aggressive in applying for things, like be confident in yourself. Um, and this applies to everyone. Be confident in what you've done. Make people want to hire you. And I, I always tell young journalists who ask, um, I, if, if I'm applying for a new job, I ask somebody who knows my work in journalism, who's not, you know, who's not a significant other, uh, to, to say nice things about me. <laughs> And then I include them in my letters and my resume. Like it, it's just helpful to have a, a second opinion sometimes if you're not necessarily like feeling super confident or think, oh, there's probably someone better out there than me. You don't know that. Like they might think you're the best. They might think you're the bee's knees. So um, just, just really uh, be confident. And then if you get that job offer, be willing to, uh, to, fight, for, to fight for what you think you deserve. Agreed. Well, thank you, Mary and Lauren and Sergio. We appreciate your time very much. Thank you for going on this little adventure with me to put together what hopefully will be the first in a series of uh, useful webinars for our young journalists in Michigan and elsewhere who want to learn more about uh, the career and also what people like you do. So uh, be safe and best of luck to you all on uh, all of your work. There's a lot of news out there today, so uh, we'll let you get to it. This has been a Better Press for a Better World, brought to you by the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association. 
Learn more about our workshops, contests, and other programs for high school and middle school journalism students and their advisors at mipamsu.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.